President Biden will visit Florida tomorrow to survey the damage from Hurricane Nadalia with thousands of people along the Gulf Coast still without power. It's Friday, September 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has disclosed gifts from a big Republican donor. Watchdog groups want more. He does not go back and list any of the trips that he took via private planes, via yacht, via helicopter that should have been reported in previous years. Also, groups in Afghanistan are still trying to evacuate Afghans who helped Americans during the war and this hour. We were like, wow, people are just getting rid of so much stuff. And it's like a lot of times high quality. But yeah, it's always pretty jarring, I'd say. All the stuff left behind as people move in and out of Boston today in the annual tradition known as Alston Christmas. Sunny in the 70s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. The water is still rising in parts of the southeastern U.S., two days after Hurricane Adalia made landfall. In west-central Florida, many Pasco County residents are ready to begin recovery efforts. The storm flooded thousands of homes along the coastline. But as Gabriella Paul from member station WUSF reports, emergency officials are warning communities are not in the clear yet. Pasco's Assistant Director of Emergency Management, Laura Wilcoxon, says people should expect delayed flooding events through Saturday. She says the county's topography is shaped like a bowl, making it easy for water to overflow into the river system below. Even 24 to 72 hours post a hurricane passing our area will start to accumulate the rainfall and other flooding from the communities that are north of us. She says that the Anclote and the Pithlachiscote rivers always are prone to delayed flooding after major storms. National Weather Service forecasts say the Anclote could swell another four feet, but that would still be several feet under the designated 20-foot flood stage. For NPR News, I'm Gabriella Paul. Former President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to charges he tried to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia. The plea came as Governor Brian Kemp rejected calls to start impeachment proceedings against Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who brought the case against Trump and 18 others. Kemp says he sees no evidence Willis violated her oath of office. In Georgia, we will not be engaging in political theater that only inflames the emotions of the moment. We will do what is right. We will uphold our oaths as public servants. And it's my belief that our state will be better off for it. A judge has yet to set a trial date for Trump. Just in time for Labor Day, the Labor Department is set to report on the nation's job market. NPR's Scott Horsley reports forecasters think employers added about 170,000 jobs last month. Forecasters think the pace of hiring has slowed compared to the beginning of the year, but employers are still adding a respectable number of jobs each month, and the unemployment rates expect to remain historically low, around 3.5%. Other indicators do point to a cooling job market. Job openings have declined, though there are still three vacancies for every two unemployed workers, and the number of workers quitting jobs has come down, so employers aren't having to deal with quite so much turnover. Today's report is also expected to show that wage growth slowed in August, but in a turnaround, wages are now climbing faster than prices, so workers have seen real improvement in their buying power. Scott Horsley, Impair News, Washington. Ahead of the Labor Day weekend, gas prices are holding fairly steady, falling only a penny since last week to a national average of 3.82 a gallon for regular. AAA points out that impact assessments are still being made from Hurricane Adelia. 
You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The Sumner Tunnel is back open. The route between East Boston and downtown had been closed for nearly two months for repairs. It reopened around 1.30 this morning. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports drivers will notice some differences when they head back into the tunnel. Repair crews have worked around the clock since July 5th, removing old concrete, installing arches to reinforce the ceiling, and modernizing the ventilation and fireproofing systems of the tunnel. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation's Jonathan Gulliver says the tunnel will have noticeable upgrades. It's going to feel more open, it's going to feel safer, and the ventilation system is, again, uh, means more clean air throughout the tunnel for drivers as they're going on their way. There is more repair work planned for the tunnel. Gulliver says at least eight weekend closures of the Sumner will happen over the next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. With the tunnel back open, free rides on the blue line of the T are over. Regular fares are also back on the East Boston Ferry and the Newburyport-Rockport commuter rail line. It'll be a busy weekend for moving between apartments turning over and college students coming back. State officials are issuing the reminder that large moving trucks are not allowed on Storo Drive, Soldiers Field Road, and Memorial Drive. Jeff Parenti is with the Department of Conservation and Recreation. He says drivers shouldn't rely on their phone navigation apps to tell them to avoid those roads. Because it's tells them that it's okay, that it must be a safe route, but a lot of times it isn't. And unfortunately, I haven't seen yet the route planning tools don't have a I'm driving a truck option, but in, in which case it would be a lot easier for newer, newer residents or people who are unfamiliar with Boston to be rooted around the river roads and, and around our low bridges. The state put new signs on those roadways this week to help drivers. Officials on the Cape are investigating a possible hate crime involving two teenagers in Chatham. The Cape and Islands District Attorney says a white 14-year-old is facing an attempted murder charge. The DA says the teenager called a black teen a racial slur and then tried to drown him. The alleged incident happened at Goose Pond back in July. The teenager accused in the crime is due back in court later this month. Health officials are warning residents in Eastham after West Nile virus was found in mosquitoes there. It's the first time the virus has been detected there this season. The findings come as Massachusetts reported its first two, two human cases of the virus earlier this week. The Department of Public Health is suggesting people wear bug repellent while outside to protect themselves. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners and by the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. The Red Sox are on the road tonight to play the Kansas City Royals. Sunny today with a high in the 70s. Clear overnight, it'll be in the 50s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 80s. Sunny on Sunday and Monday and in the mid-80s. Right now it's 57 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Yesterday, two conservative Supreme Court justices officially disclosed for the first time that they received valuable benefits that they had not previously made public. Both Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito have been under fire for months following reports from ProPublica and other outlets about these previously undisclosed gifts, trips, and honoraria. So now that they've made the disclosure, what next? Virginia Cantor is here to talk about that. She's chief ethics counsel for the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. That's a nonpartisan government watchdog group with a particular focus on conflicts of interest. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So now we have these disclosure reports. Both justices say they never intended to violate the disclosure rules that apply to the high court, which we are finding out are fairly thin. Justice Thomas in particular says he plans to follow the rules more closely in the future. You had a long career as an ethics official at federal agencies and the White House. Should the public be satisfied with that? I think not. Um, The bottom line shows that uh, of these disclosures show that Justice Thomas's lifestyle is still being subsidized by billionaires like Harlan Crow, and neither he nor Justice Alito have made a full accounting um, of their acceptance of luxurious vacations and travel that they took in the prior years. And, and you know, some groups, including Fix the Court, are saying that Justice Thomas in particular needs to go back and amend old disclosure so he's fully compliant with ethics rules. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, all other, you know, filers who are subject to the Ethics in Government Act have to ensure that they're in in compliance. And in fact, the Department of Justice has actually prosecuted individuals for not disclosing plane trips on their financial disclosure reports. Um, And uh, Justice Thomas, you know, took, you know, yacht trips to the Bahamas, Greek islands, Indonesia, Uh, ProPublica has documented at least 26 private jets flights, as well as helicopter flights and VIP passes to sporting events. You know, there's some new information in Justice Thomas's report. He acknowledged personal bank accounts with hundreds of thousands of dollars, a life insurance policy in his wife's name. Do those strike you as significant omissions? Well, it's it's puzzling and surprising because like that, that's something that almost, I mean, that's just like the most basic type of disclosure. So it's it's certainly, you know, the bank accounts, it's extremely puzzling why that wouldn't have been reported, I think, you know, for the past five years. So, I mean, the bottom line is they will be, be in non-compliance. Their reports are now in non-compliance for past years until these reports are amended. So I just want to mention that in March, the Judicial Conference, which sets policies for the federal judiciary, tightened the rules on disclosing certain types of gifts. For one, federal judges and Supreme Court justices are now supposed to disclose private jet trips. It also seems unlikely that Congress is going to pass new ethics rules for the court. Republicans vehemently oppose this. So in the absence of legislation, what, what do you think should happen as briefly as you can? Well, I mean, it, it's really at this point... Um, the Supreme Court has to step up and adopt a code of conduct. They need to uh, adopt an ethical framework so that um, these types of matters can be, you know, fully addressed and so that it will restore public confidence in the integrity of the court. Right now, it looks pretty lawless and um, it's extremely uh, disturbing to the American public that those who are required to administer the law have failed to adhere to it. 
Before we let you go, as briefly as you can, do you think that this is a partisan issue? Do you think Republicans at, at some level share that concern? No, absolutely not. He needs to address, you know, loans he received about an RV, tuition paid by Harlan Crow. Th- these are fundamental okay. issues and never, never partisan. Virginia Cantor is with Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Virginia Cantor, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you. This holiday weekend is expected to be one of the busiest travel periods of the year. Yeah, Tropical Storm Adalia could create delays. And earlier this week, American Airlines flight attendants threatened to strike against the airliner unless it met pay and benefit demands. So what does this mean for your travel plans? David Koenig, Airlines reporter for the Associated Press, has some answers and is with us now. Good morning, David. Hi, Michelle. Good morning. So what can travelers expect this weekend? You nailed it. It's going to be busy, (laughs) you know, on the roads at the airport. It is going to be uh, really a a crowded one. The Auto Club AAA is saying that travel bookings of all kinds, and that includes flights, hotels, rental cars, they're up 4% over last year's Labor Day. And TSA is expecting to screen about 11% more air travelers than they did uh, over the holiday last year. So if you're flying, uh, I think the best advice is get to the airport early and be patient. And, you know, parts of the country are still recovering from the damage of that tropical storm. It's now a tropical storm. Idalia, do we have a sense of whether that is going to affect travel? Uh, The good news is that Idalia has moved out. It's gone off into the Atlantic. We did have about 1,700 flights that were canceled uh, between Tuesday and Wednesday, and most of those were in Florida and Georgia because of the storm. The airline schedules at least have recovered. I mean, there's still power outages and a lot of damage left by the storm, but air travel seems to have recovered. So that's good. The cautionary note is that airlines have struggled at times in the last couple of years, even during good weather, when air travel has come back the way it has. And we're also dealing with a shortage of air traffic controllers, but at least Idalia seems to be uh, behind us. Hmm, That's remarkable. What about the strike authorization by American Airlines flight attendants? Is it possible that they may actually strike on what is expected to be one of the busiest weekends of the year? The short answer is no. They're they're not going to strike anytime soon. They did authorize their union to call for a strike if it comes to that. They are currently negotiating. They haven't had pay raises since 2019, and they're very frustrated with the pace of negotiations with the company. But federal law makes it really hard for airline unions to conduct strikes, at least legally. There are several steps that have to happen first. Federal mediators have to say any more talks are pointless. And even then, the president and Congress can step in and delay a strike or impose a settlement on both sides. Mm -hmm. So unions believe these votes energize their members and put pressure on the companies to settle the contract negotiations. And they do seem to help in that regard. But we're a long way, really, from a strike. We've talked a lot about flights, but what about people who are traveling by road? What can they expect? So we are uh, expecting that to be an issue, too. AAA says if you're driving, go early in the morning or later in the day to avoid the heaviest traffic because there are going to be lots of other folks with you. All right. That's David Koenig with the Associated Press. David, thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. When Hurricane Adalia came ashore in Florida earlier this week, it battered beach towns and fishing communities along what's known as the Nature Coast. 
One tiny fishing village especially ravaged was Horseshoe Beach, Florida. NPR's Bobby Allen went there to talk to residents about whether they plan to rebuild or start over someplace else. For five generations, Austin Ellison's family has been in the same business in Horseshoe Beach, Florida. We supply seafood all over the state of Florida. Live shrimp, all kind of seafood. But when Idalia struck the coast as a Category 3 storm with 125 mile per hour winds, his family's business, Ed's Bait House and Marina, took a frontal hit. Ellison describes this standing feet away from where the business once stood. It's over to my right. As you can see over to my right, it's gone. It's gone, completely gone. The only thing that's left is the roof right there. Ellison points to his shrimping boat named Miss Laura floating in a nearby canal. Its windows were busted. It survived otherwise. But with his family business flattened and his home here also having taken a beating, Ellison wonders, is it worth rebuilding at all or moving on? It makes you think, um, what's next? Do you throw your hands up? I mean, what, what do you do? What do you do? It's something many residents and business owners are asking themselves as they dig out of rubble and fear that this remote village known for shrimping, clamming, and scalloping won't be able to make a comeback. Dennis Buckley says he's going to do his part to make sure it does. Buckley ran a business called The Marina that offered boating supplies, motel units, and spaces for RVs. The storm nearly blew it all away. Takes your breath away, but that's about where we're at with it. The business is still standing, but its windows and interiors have been completely destroyed. We're not quitters. We just do one thing, move on. You can't change yesterday. You just go ahead and clean this up. We'll be open again. As the long cleanup process goes on, Buckley says those coming to just catch a glimpse of the destruction should stay away. This isn't a spectacle. This is a catastrophe. The most fortunate ones in Horseshoe Beach are people like longtime resident Cherie Douglas. As we looked at her house, a nearby neighbor also assessing property damage waved. Hey, how are y'all doing? The neighbor said, wow, your house fared pretty well. The reason? The 18-foot stilt supporting Douglas's house. Douglas, like many others, heeded officials' warnings to evacuate ahead of the storm. I think the people leaving and just securing what they could probably saved a lot of lives down here. And while her home made it through, she worries the community might not. She says a big chunk of the population is already seasonal due to fishing and the ebbs and flows of tourism. So if too many restart someplace else, it will fray Horseshoe Beach's community fabric. This is a community where when it is sunset, everybody gets on their golf cart and their four-wheelers or side-by-sides, and we all ride down to the point and watch sunset together as a community. And it's not unusual to have 100 people, 150 people down there. And if there really are 150 people gathering, that's just about everyone. The town's population is 172. But there are so many towns along this part of Florida, like Horseshoe Beach tight-knit communities vital to the state's fishing industry, which could be disrupted by the storm bringing so many fishing operations to a halt. Seafood business owner Austin Ellis, he says if people do visit during the rebuild, he has one request. They get a two-by-four, just bring it to 262 Main Street. Bobby Allen, NPR News, Horseshoe Beach, Florida. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. The Sumner Tunnel is back open. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we hear from the state's highway administrator on the project and the next round of closures that will affect drivers. It's 719. 
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. On last week's Wait, Wait, superstar music producer Mark Ronson told us the real reason he decided to work on the other side of the soundboard. I think part of the reason why I became a DJ, I'm such a bad dancer that I picked this job where I would never really have to dance. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. Remember what they say, listen to this week's news quiz as if nobody's watching. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. We have an update on a story we told you about yesterday about swans that were stuck in Salisbury Pond in Worcester. Two Worcester residents freed the swans and its three babies. They tell the Telegram and Gazette they used a rented ladder to reach the birds. They say they were frustrated that animal control was taking so long to act. Sunny today with a high near 74. Clear skies tonight and a low around 58. Tomorrow, sunny again with a high around 80. Sunday, mostly sunny and a high near 86. And sunny on Labor Day with a high back at 86. Right now, it's 58 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Mattress Firm, whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at MattressFirm.com. From Indeed, Designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Today, Paris becomes the first European capital to ban rentable electric scooters from its streets. Paris was one of the first major cities to embrace them. As NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports, the love affair did not last. Okay, so here, scan to ride. I've scanned it. It says I can start riding. Check your brakes. Make sure you wear a helmet. Step on, push off, press go, accelerate. One rider per scooter only and no drunk driving. Here I go. I take a last spin on an e-scooter at the end of August. When I turn it back in, I have to send a picture to prove I'm parked in a properly designated place. We have uh, tried to make a regulation of uh, scooters, uh, electric scooters in uh, 2020 uh, by uh, reducing the number of uh, operators, by reducing the numbers of uh, uh, scooters, and by uh, using uh, new rules, uh, especially in parking. That's David Belliard, advisor to the Paris mayor for transportation, mobility, and the transformation of public spaces. Uh, Three years after, uh, a lot of uh, problems uh, still exist, especially in terms of uh, insecurity and uh, in terms of um, sharing of uh, public space. The scooters were also ordered off the sidewalks and the companies which operated them were required to place speed limits on the devices after many injuries and two reported deaths. 
But even after the changes, an Italian tourist walking along the Seine River became the third fatality when she was hit by a scooter carrying two riders. Nevertheless, many are disappointed over the ban, none more so than young people like 17-year-old Maria Cantal and her friend Inès Renault. That's not good for us because the scooter was good to get around uh, everything. So it was uh, more simple. Oh. Uh, it's very sad. Yes, yes. it was uh, very cool and uh, <laughs> so uh, we're sad. <laughs> but after a petition garnered 18,000 signatures, the city put the question of whether the e-scooters were to be or not to be on a referendum last April. 89% of the 104,000 voters elected to get rid of them. Privately owned scooters are exempt. Even though only 11% of registered voters cast a ballot, city officials say that is a significant number for a local issue. The three companies that operated scooters in Paris had until August 31st to get 15,000 electric scooters off the streets. 56-year-old Nathalie Dupont says hallelujah. Yes, they've disappeared. I'm so happy. People still went too fast and on the sidewalks. I have a friend who broke her leg and her arm when a scooter ran into her. Paris city official Belliard says Rome, London and Brussels no doubt face a similar situation, but he believes Paris's problems were more intense. Paris is a small town, very dense, uh, with a lot of people. Uh, so uh, public space is a very big and high pressure in terms of, uh, of utilization. Paris is Europe's most densely populated city, he says, so more people share the public space. In a press statement, Lime, the biggest e-scooter operator, said it would redeploy its Paris fleet to dynamic European cities where scooter use is growing. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. East Coast versus West Coast. That was the state of hip-hop in the 1990s. And that tension reached a peak at the 1995 Source Awards in New York when California Snoop Dogg antagonized the crowd. The East Coast ain't got no love for Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Death Row. Y'all don't love us. That speech accelerated the East Coast-West Coast rap war. But another speech that night by an up-and-coming duo heralded a new direction in rap. And that direction was South. Culture critic Kiana Fitzgerald is looking back at a few of hip-hop's game-changing albums. And today, it's Aquemini by OutKast. At the infamous 1995 Source Awards, OutKast won Best New Artist. They were met with boos and jeers. And they really laid down the gauntlet with a statement that was made by Andre 3000, who was one half of OutKast. Yeah, but it's like, the South got something to say. That's all I got to say. The South got something to say. That reverberated throughout hip hop. It was something that other Southerners had felt. They knew that they were not being included in the national conversation about hip hop. Outkast may not have known it, but they really placed the heart of hip hop right over Atlanta. And that's when things changed. With Aquemini, Outkast had their twangs and their local colloquialisms on full display. The two members of Outkast are Big Boy and Andre 3000. Outkast really interrogated the way that Southerners lived. 
with a perspective that was both hungry from Andre 3000, but also reserved from Big Boy. Now it's the time to get on lights by Lee, say get on the bus. Go get your work and keep your people chirping, it's a must. Get you on that bill, some cornstarch, familiar with that smack man. The music is like that green stuff, provided to you by Sack Man. The title track of Aquemini is probably the most representative example of Outkast bringing their southern roots. It's slow, it's deliberate. It sounds like a late summer evening sitting on the porch with a glass of tea or something like that. This album really blew the door open for so many artists who are from the South, but also artists who are just from a different way of life. We have lived experiences that other people can relate to. How can we dig into the lives of people who are not traditionally represented? Aquemini was just the lead up in terms of what Outkast was capable of becoming. Just a few short years later, they would create Speaker Box The Love Below that won Album of the Year at the Grammys, which was a huge deal. The focus of the genre has kind of shifted over the past decades, but it always comes back to Atlanta with artists like Future and 21 Savage and Migos, who are all directly inspired by Outkast. So this album really did a lot for Atlanta and for Outkast, but it also did so much for the, the entire Southern U.S. That was Kiana Fitzgerald. Her new book is called Ode to Hip Hop, 50 Albums That Define 50 Years of Trailblazing Music. She'll break down another album next week. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Far-right groups in Greece are making baseless claims that migrants set recent wildfires. Meanwhile, many migrants died in those fires. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Tens of thousands of homes and businesses are still without power in Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas because of Idalia. The storm came ashore along Florida's northern Gulf Coast as a Category 3 hurricane before it weakened. Damage assessments are continuing. Amy Firestein's business suffered heavy damage in Cedar Key, not far from where Idalia made landfall. Basically walked along and saw the debris and went to the front and saw that one of our buildings is gone. One of the other buildings is missing the wall. The front unit is, uh, I don't think, savable, maybe. I'm not sure. So it was a little heart-wrenching and depressing when you first come in and see it. President Biden is expected to travel to Florida tomorrow. Airports and highways across the U.S. are expected to be crowded over the Labor Day weekend. David Koenig is with the Associated Press. 
AAA is saying that travel bookings of all kinds, and that includes flights, hotels, rental cars, they're up 4% over last year's Labor Day. And TSA is expecting to screen about 11% more air travelers than they did uh, over the holiday last year. AAA says gasoline prices are just about where they were this time last year. Regular is averaging almost $3.82 a gallon nationwide, a penny less than one year ago. This is NPR News from Washington. Crews in more than a dozen states continue to fight wildfires. Most are burning in the western U.S. The National Interagency Fire Center says Oregon, Idaho, and Montana each have large fires numbering in the double digits. Ella Hutcherson with Jefferson Public Radio says the Smith River Complex fire near Oregon's border with California has blackened more than 83,000 acres. Areas immediately surrounding the Smith River complex have been evacuated or are under evacuation warnings. In both Oregon and California, firefighters have been putting in defensive lines to protect these rural communities. Eric Waters is a public information officer with the Smith River complex north. He's optimistic that higher humidity and cooler temperatures will improve conditions in the coming days. We're feeling pretty good about that. Uh, You know, anytime Mother Nature can give us a hand, We all appreciate it. But, officials say, favorable weather conditions won't be enough to put the fire out. For NPR News, I'm Ella Hutcherson in Ashland, Oregon. Some school districts in Texas say they don't have the money to place an armed officer in every school. That mandate took effect today statewide. It was enacted in response to last year's deadly shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. The attack by a gunman left 19 students and two teachers dead. Dow futures are up 128 points this morning. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Several Massachusetts legal experts say the decision to disbar a former prosecutor in a state drug lab scandal sends a strong message. The state Supreme Judicial Court ruled that former prosecutor Ann Kaczmarek should be disbarred for not turning over evidence that could have helped defendants. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Former First Assistant Bar Counsel Nancy Kaufman said the ruling is significant. It is pretty much unprecedented in Massachusetts for a prosecutor to be disbarred. And in fact, until recent years, prosecutors were usually not held accountable. Kazmarek is accused of withholding evidence that former state chemist Sonia Farrick had been using the drugs she was supposed to be testing at the Amherst lab for longer than the AG's office claimed. Farrick was arrested a decade ago, and thousands of criminal cases were dismissed because of her misconduct. The SJC said former assistant AG Chris Foster should be suspended for one year and a day. The high court said Foster and Kazmarek's former supervisor, John Verner, should only face a public reprimand. For 90.9 WBU, I'm Deborah Becker. The March of Dimes is joining the call to stop the closure of a birthing center in Lemonster. The maternity care nonprofit is asking health and government officials to take steps to keep the center open. The group tells the Boston Globe it's worried Massachusetts will start to see more maternity care deserts. UMass Memorial Health announced a plan to close the center earlier this year. Last month, state officials deemed it an essential service.
The Sumner Tunnel is back open this morning, but more road work is coming for drivers. The Bourne Bridge will be reduced from two lanes to just one lane in each direction around the clock starting September 18th. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers says the lane closures will allow for maintenance work. They'll stay in place through November. It's 735. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, where portfolio managers, research analysts, and traders work together to help clients reach their financial goals. Learn more at LoomisSales.com. The Red Sox begin a week-long road trip tonight. They'll visit the Kansas City Royals. The Sox head into the new month after going 13 and 15 in August. Clear skies and highs in the mid-70s today. Temperatures fall to the upper 50s tonight. Then sunny skies the whole Labor Day holiday weekend with highs around 80 tomorrow and mid to upper 80s on Sunday and Monday. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. For the first time in two months, the Sumner Tunnel is open to drivers. The link from East Boston to downtown reopened around 1.30 this morning. But the big reconstruction project isn't over yet. For more, we're joined now by State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for being here. How's it going so far this morning? It's going great. I mean, we're we're always happy when we could be talking about uh, opening up a major project on time. And uh, this was uh, a project that had a lot of engineering and planning that uh, that goes back a number of years now. Uh, and it really made it made made it possible for us to get into this tunnel and have a great plan that unfolded exactly as we anticipated. So things went about as smooth as could be expected over the last couple of months. Uh, our contractor, uh, vacated the tunnel just just before midnight last night. We brought in a paint crew just to freshen up the uh, pavement markings and uh, opened it up right away around 1.30. It was great. So things things really went about as smooth as we could have hoped for. And drivers going through the tunnel today may just be grateful to not be dealing with detours. But what do you hope they notice has improved because of the reconstruction project? Well, I think I think they're going to notice the changes. They're they're pretty obvious. The first is. It is now a well-lit tunnel. The, there's 500 new energy-efficient LED fixtures that we installed. Uh, it's going to also feel more open. We installed uh, 700 new precast ceiling arches, and as part of that, we also redesigned the ventilation system. So a, a large portion of that tunnel no longer has the suspended ceiling that we used to have. The, the ventilate that used to provide a part of the ventilation by having that enclosed as a plenum. We've now removed that. And uh, for a large part of the tunnel, you're going to see uh, those exposed arches and they feel much more open. So it's going to be a, a noticeable change for anybody that's going into that tunnel. People living in East Boston, Revere and Chelsea face some of the biggest delays during the closure. What kind of feedback did you get from them? Generally positive. You know, I, I really do want to thank the residents and, and the regular commuters that come through the tunnel. They 
they uh, across the board changed their schedules, they sought alternate routes, and they took advantage of the various free public transit services that we provided during construction. It definitely paid off. It was noticeable you, you, when we track traffic data on a daily basis. And things worked really, really well. People people took advantage of those alternate modes and it made it as smooth as it could possibly be. It's not that it wasn't difficult, it was, but uh, it was manageable and that was a, a key thing for us. So all in all, uh, that worked out really well. Uh, there's still more work to come. I wanna stress that we have a number of weekend closures, about eight of them scheduled for this calendar year. And then right now we're reassessing uh, all of the information that we gathered about the tunnel floor, which is the work that we're doing next year. And we're going to be looking at that data and we're going to be formulating our approach next year to, to make sure that we are taking advantage of every opportunity to reduce impacts. So that's how we're going to be spending the next couple of months. And we'll have more information on next year's plans uh, pretty soon. So it doesn't sound like you know yet how you might do things differently next year. Not yet. Uh, there's still a lot of work to go through to, to determine that. Uh, I think for now, uh, people can expect that we're going to have a closure next year uh, during that same time frame, and we'll have more details on that in the coming months. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver, thank you very much. All right, thank you. Thousands of people will be moving in and out of apartments across the Boston area today, especially in parts of the city popular with college students. And plenty of them will leave behind unwanted items for others to pick up in a tradition known as Alston Christmas. Some people see it as a chance to grab a free couch or mattress, but Boston Commissioner of Inspectional Services Sean Lydon says that if something's in the trash, you should leave it alone. There's a reason it's out in the trash. Leave it there. Let them pick it up. Particularly electrical. You know, you don't want to pick up a lamp or something and plug it into the wall, leave it on. It could be a short short in there. There's a reason it's in the trash. Leave it there. You can tell by all the U-Haul vans around town that the big move is already underway. We caught up with some of those movers yesterday. I'm James Kunstel. I'm moving out of Gardner Street in Alston uh, and out to Brighton. Uh, We moved into a storage unit Um, so we wouldn't have to deal with the day itself. It's really sad to see a bunch of stuff get left out. As we've gone through our apartment, not everything can get moved. You know, when you live in a place for two, three years, you naturally have a bunch of stuff build up. So I've tried wherever possible to put stuff out uh, for people to take, but anything that I didn't do that with, I either donated or had to junk. Uh, which I absolutely hate doing. In general, the Alston Christmas tradition is nice enough that people do seem to come get stuff, but I do hate seeing the dumpsters fill up. We're a private company. S&K Waste Services. It's uh, Lucio Matos. It's just a bunch of random shelvings, couches, trash, junk, you know, move outs. Yeah. Honestly, it could probably be donated, you know, but yeah, just throw it out. So we are Austin Christmas hunting. <laughs> I'm Melissa Taylor. Yeah, we found a couple things. We got some stools, pull-up bar, um, bubbles, Bubble. which is fun. Um, yeah. Wait, what are these? 
It's so insane. Um, this happens at the end of the year in May, too, where you're like, wow, people are just getting rid of so much stuff. And it's like a lot of times high quality. Um, but yeah, it's always pretty jarring, I'd say. Like we saw we saw some of the like fabric, people were getting rid of clothes. Like just developing a fabric recycling program would be cool, um, as well as also like the food waste. Really, even like the, the cardboard recycling is like, we, we could probably do a lot better for sure. Last year, Massachusetts banned disposal of textiles, including clothing, bedding, and sneakers. You can find out how to recycle these items by going to WBUR.org and searching waste ban. This piece was produced by Lainey Rockstall. You're with WBUR on a Friday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, employers across the country, from Zoom to the federal government, are pressuring their workers to return to the office, arguing that the time together benefits employees and productivity in general. In the forecast, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says we have some great holiday weekend weather in store. Well, just an incredible stretch of weather for this unofficial end to summer. Dry, lots of sunshine and a warming trend. High 70 to 75 today. Tomorrow will be around 80 with a nice breeze. Humidity still in check. It will be noticeably more humid by Sunday and Labor Day, though. Highs in the mid-80s, both of those afternoons for Boston. Some spots touch 90 north and west of the city. 70s on Cape Cod. And if you are beachbound, just be mindful of the rip current risk, especially from the outer Cape to the islands and the south coast. It's 59 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org. And Cambridge Arts, presenting Open Studio September 9th and 10th. See and shop the creativity that is Cambridge. CambridgeArtsCouncil.org. For the second time in a year, the Cambridge tech marketing firm Pegasystems is laying off hundreds of workers. The company announced yesterday it'll cut 240 jobs. That's about 4% of its global workforce. Company leaders blame declining sales. Pegasystems also laid off more than 200 people back in January. Local unionized workers with Avis Rental Car are on strike this morning. Members of IUE-CWA Local 201 began a one-day strike at midnight. The union says Avis has not appointed someone to negotiate a new contract. There's been no comment from the company. A popular Mexican restaurant in Union Square, Somerville, is closing after three decades in business. Cantina La Mexicana will shut down on Sunday after what owners say will be one last party with plenty of margaritas. The owners blame high rent and increasing competition for the closure. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Helping nonprofit organizations, including performing arts organizations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Greece is experiencing one of its worst wildfire seasons in recorded history. At least 18 people have died in the fires in a mountainous region near the border, near the border with Turkey. That is also where migrants enter Greece, often illegally. Reporter Lydia Emanolidou says those facts have exposed an ugly current in Greek society. Officials say that lightning is probably what started the first fire in the Alexandrupolis area nearly two weeks ago, and that flames spread throughout the region because of dry and windy conditions. But locals like Giordanis tell me that's not the full story. We know very well who's lighting the fire. We've caught many people who light them. It's migrants, clearly. Here, it's illegal migrants. Giordanis asked us not to use his last name so he could speak openly. He's blaming migrants for setting the fires, people who've crossed into Greece from the Turkish border seeking asylum. In private messaging apps and on social media, local far-right militias have been coordinating patrols, sharing locations of supposed migrant sightings, and calling on people to hunt them, beat them, and even murder them. In this video that went viral, a local man says he's caught several, quote, pieces, who he claims, without evidence, were setting fires. He opens the door to his windowless trailer and shows the people he's captured. What? Among those who shared this video is the leader of the ultra-nationalist political party, Greek Solution, one of several far-right parties Greeks voted into their parliament in national elections in June. Police investigated the video's claims and found 13 Syrians and Pakistanis being held captive. Then, based on the testimony of the three men arrested for holding them, officials charged the migrants with arson. They said that I am an immigrant and I'm dangerous. Argiris Kodolemos is a former actor who traveled to this region to help with relief efforts, and he found his own picture being circulated by far-right groups. So people uh, start to look for me, to hit me or kill me, or uh, I don't know what they, they want to do with me. The photo was taken down after he threatened to sue. Meanwhile, all those who died in the blazes in the Evros region are believed to have been migrants. Pavlos Pavlidis is the local coroner in Alexandrupolis. Some were found charred in a shed, he says, where it seems they were hiding in a forested mountain area. Others were found nearby after seemingly trying to run down the mountain and escape the fire. So they lost their lives because maybe they didn't have the possibility to ask for help and protection. Elenis Pathana is a lawyer with Refugee Support Aegean, an organization that provides legal assistance to asylum seekers and refugees. She says harsh Greek and EU policies can force undocumented immigrants to hide for fear of being violently and unlawfully returned to Turkey. In the border area of Evros, we do have uh, more and more, the last, in particular the last uh, years, serious incidents of unlawful returns. So-called pushbacks have been documented by news media and NGOs and appear to be happening more systematically under the current conservative Greek government. Greek authorities deny the allegations, but they have repeatedly expressed relief that no Greek citizens have died in the fires. For NPR News, I'm Lydia Menulidou in Alexandrupolis, Greece.
This is NPR News. It's Friday, and that means it's time for StoryCorps. Coming up at 8.20 on WBOR's Morning Edition, the story of a couple who got engaged at a StoryCorps recording booth. It's 7.50. More teens are overdosing on fentanyl, so schools are grappling with how to approach a drug use crisis unlike any they've seen before. We need to revive drug education in America. In a way, we need to Narcan drug education. We need to breathe life into it, bring it back. How schools can play a role in saving students' lives on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. President Biden will be in Florida tomorrow to survey damage from Hurricane Adalia. A Missouri judge says the 84-year-old white homeowner who shot the black teenager Ralph Yarl after he mistakenly went to the wrong house will need to stand trial. Two former leaders of the far-right Proud Boys group have each been sentenced to more than a decade in prison for their actions during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Mid-70s today and sunny. It falls to the upper 50s tonight, then sunny on Saturday and around 80, mostly sunny in mid to upper 80s on Sunday and Monday. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Two years after the chaotic U.S. pullout from Afghanistan, many thousands of lives are still unsettled. 120,000 people were able to leave the country in an airlift that ended two years ago this week, but many others wanted to leave and couldn't, including some who fought and worked alongside American forces and were promised visas to the U.S. It has fallen to a small group of Americans to keep that promise, as NPR's quote. Lawrence reports. Two people might have been at this the longest. Kirk Wallace Johnson. Back in 2006, colleagues and friends of mine in Iraq were killed or who were being hunted because they were affiliated with the United States. And Matt Zeller. Way back in October of 2013, I was able to successfully evacuate my personal interpreter, Janice Shinwari without whom I wouldn't be alive. He doesn't mean that figuratively. The interpreter, Janice, shot a Taliban fighter who was about to shoot Zeller. Zeller didn't know much about asylum or refugees. He was an army officer. Same with Johnson. He worked for USAID in Fallujah. I didn't have any sort of plans to become a refugee advocate or anything like that. It was just a simple matter of conscience. Both men started organizations to help U.S. military allies escape. Fast forward to 2021. Johnson had started a family and a successful career as a writer. His books were well-received, and the last two were not about Iraq. I was trying to move on from the wars. I was just in the run-up to the fall of Kabul throughout that year. I could not look away, and I and many other people were getting bombarded with increasingly desperate emails. And he got sucked back in. And then the Taliban took Kabul and hundreds of thousands of Afghans needed to get out. Zeller's organization, No One Left Behind, is now one of hundreds of groups and individuals trying to save former U.S. allies from the Taliban. I'm on this group chat um, that's been going on for two years now, and, you know, I would say two to three times a week, there's somebody reports with visual evidence the murder of somebody who was left behind. 
The loss of one of these allies, most of whom have been waiting years for a U.S. visa, leaves behind a grieving family and often an irreversibly broken promise by a veteran. Veterans have this moral injury that is the most insidious type of injury that you can have. Safi Rauf is in the U.S. Navy Reserves. He immigrated from Afghanistan as a kid and then worked alongside American special forces in Afghanistan. He says many veterans are still in this fight because of that moral injury. And this injury cannot be cured by any means except acts of service. And that's why all the veterans continue to do those acts of service, continue to have hope for something that will happen. Rauf now runs a group called Human First that helps Afghans to escape and resettle. But roughly 50,000 Afghans who made it here still have no long-term legal status. They can't work, they can't get health insurance, they could be deported. Maybe triple that number are still stuck in Afghanistan, waiting for a special immigrant visa, an SIV. Air Force vet Lauren Voss works with No One Left Behind. So I was up last night reviewing some complicated cases. Cases with well-known references, like the former commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. You know, one of them was someone who had a letter from General Petraeus saying that this person was amazing and helped them in so many ways and denied, right? I mean, trying to go through the paperwork and figuring out what went wrong. As an intelligence officer, Voss can tell you why it's vital to national security that America preserves credibility with human intelligence assets. But that's not what's keeping her at this. That moral argument to me is the reason why, you know, I'm not the only one up at 1 a.m. I can get in any of the chats and, and ask a question and five people will respond. I think what you hear now from a lot of them, though, is that their people are getting desperate Um, They're losing hope. Um, You know, I've gotten messages before that someone's going to turn himself in to the Taliban so that his wife and kids are safe. All of the vets and diplomats and faith groups working till 1 a.m., they say it's going to take government action to speed the endless backlog of SIV applications and fix the legal limbo for the Afghans in the U.S. There's a bill for that, the Afghan Adjustment Act, with votes to pass the Senate and the House. But Senators Tom Cotton and Chuck Grassley have blocked it since last year. In July, they offered their own bill, which they say provides more security vetting. Critics say it's dead on arrival and designed only for political cover of anti-immigrant views. Sean Van Diver is a Navy vet who leads the group Afghan EVAC. All those people that on key anniversary day talk about how much they want to hold the administration accountable. We are hopeful that they'll remember that there are still lives on the line. This is an ongoing crisis. It's not done. It's not history. Van Diver is angry but optimistic. He says there's still broad bipartisan support, and he points to 25,000 people evacuated from Afghanistan since after the U.S. withdrew two years ago this week. For Matt Zeller, his optimism comes and goes. He's been at this since 2013. One of these years is going to be great. We're going to talk, and you're like, so what's the status? We're like, cool, they're all here. <laughs> That's what I would love you to say is, you know, we did it. They're all here. We now have great Thanksgivings and iftars together, and you should come by for one. But I, um, I fear that what's ultimately going to happen is, you know, one of these years going to say, "How's it going?" I'm going to say, "They're going." I'm going to say, "Most of them are dead." Kirk Johnson says he watched the U.S. act quickly for Ukrainian refugees, not Afghans. But it's not lost on me that we're talking about 
Muslims, we're talking about people who have a different skin color than ours, who have done, in many cases, more in the service of the United States than your average American has. This group of Americans, veterans, diplomats, religious groups, and others, are marking this two-year anniversary of a war that isn't over for them. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. This afternoon on All Things Considered, Republican lawmakers succeeded in passing a bill to narrow voting access in North Carolina. The Democratic governor vetoed it, but will that even matter when the GOP has the power to override? Listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or your radio. And this is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. There are two WBUR community listening sessions coming up next month. On September 5th, we'll be in Chelsea. On September 9th, we'll visit Lawrence. We want to hear from people in those communities about the key issues on their minds. Learn more and sign up at wbur.org slash events. Count on great weather through the Labor Day holiday weekend. We'll have sunny skies with mid-70s today and upper 50s tonight. Sunny and upper 70s tomorrow, then clear skies in mid to upper 80s on Sunday and Monday. Right now it's 60 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Two former leaders of the far-right Proud Boys group have each been sentenced to more than a decade in prison for spearheading the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. It's Friday, September 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, 22 years after September 11th, settlement talks for defendants held at the Guantanamo Bay detention camp are faltering. Also this hour... This would be the first time in 50 years that the federal government would be acknowledging that there's some medical utility to this drug. The Drug Enforcement Administration is considering easing regulations on marijuana. And with warmer weather brought by climate change, some Massachusetts farmers are trying new crops typically grown farther south. It's a November apple, so that's unusual for New England, but we're getting to the point where we can, you know, ripen apples later and later here. Sunny in 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. President Biden is traveling to Florida tomorrow. Close to 100,000 people are without power there after Hurricane Adalia slammed into the Big Bend region. As NPR's Greg Allen reports, cleanup is underway in one of the worst hit areas. A nearly seven-foot storm surge hit Cedar Key, the largest ever recorded. It devastated low-lying homes and businesses, including a coffee house, the Prickly Palm. Like most here, owner Hannah Healy evacuated before the storm. As Edalia rolled in, she watched real-time on the Weather Channel as floodwaters engulfed her business. I was watching my belongings go float down the road. 
and I could see limbs floating by at different points on the channel. My giant planter boxes floated away. Power has been restored to undamaged homes and businesses on the island, and water service is resuming soon. Healy is confident hers and most other businesses in Cedar Key will soon be back. Greg Allen, NPR News, Cedar Key, Florida. The White House is asking Congress for $16 billion in emergency funding to replenish the Federal Emergency Management Agency's Disaster Relief Fund. This morning, the Labor Department is releasing its monthly picture of employment in the U.S. NPR Scott Horsley says the number of jobs added is expected to show steady gains. The predictions are for somewhere around 170,000 jobs being added last month, similar to what we saw in June and July. That would be a slowdown from the pace of hiring earlier in the year, but employers are still adding more than enough jobs to keep the unemployment rate near a 50-year low. NPR Scott Horsley reporting. Today's report is likely to show wages are still rising, although not as quickly as a year ago. COVID cases are rising again, but the nation's top health official says the U.S. is in a much better position heading into this flu season. Leslie McClurg from member station KQED explains. Two primary factors are at play, increased immunity and more tools. 97% of adults have either had COVID or received a shot. Plus, there's rapid tests and rapid treatments. On top of that, three annual vaccines will be available to combat the leading respiratory viruses, COVID, flu, and RSV. Dr. Mandy Cohen is director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She says the latest COVID booster will be available in mid-September. That vaccine is tailored specifically to the current dominant circulating variants of COVID-19. Cohen says early indications also suggest the booster will protect against the latest emerging variant, BA 2.6. For NPR News, I'm Leslie McClurg. The CDC is providing states with nearly $280 million in the fight against fentanyl and other drug overdoses. Funding is also going to local health departments. The CDC's director says there is a growing overdose crisis. You're listening to NPR News. Today, Paris becomes the first European capital to ban rentable electric scooters. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports the scooters were widely used but dangerous, with reported injuries and three deaths in the city since they came into use in 2018. Paris was one of the pioneer cities for e-scooters, but after five years, it's saying au revoir. Despite rules that got them off the sidewalks, slowed their speed, and forced users to park them in designated places, the scooters continued to cause chaos on Paris streets. Paris is a small town, very dense, uh, with a lot of people, uh, 10 kilometers on 10 kilometers, so uh, public space is uh, very high pressure. That's David Belliard, advisor to the Paris mayor. He says Paris is Europe's most densely populated city. Parisians voted to get rid of the city's 15,000 rentable electric scooters in a referendum last April. Cities like Barcelona and Montreal have also banned them. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. The Kremlin says Russian President Vladimir Putin will hold talks with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan on Monday in a Russian Black Sea resort. The meeting comes amid efforts to repair the Black Sea grain deal. Russia backed out of the agreement that was brokered by Turkey and the United Nations to allow the safe export of grain and other food to reach places where hunger is a threat during the war between Russia and Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russian officials say a Ukrainian drone attacked a town that is next to one of the 
the country's largest nuclear power station. It is still operational. I'm Kristen Wright, NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Sumner Tunnel is back open to drivers. The link between East Boston and downtown reopened around 1.30 this morning after being closed for two months. In that time, crews did a major overhaul of the tunnel's ceiling, walls, and ventilation system. The tunnel will be closed again for some weekends over the next year. And then next summer, State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says the tunnel will shut down again for several weeks. The big thing that we're looking for for next year, though, is uh, all the engineering that we gathered over the last couple of months. We're going to be going through and evaluating that and see where we have opportunities to change our approach and make it less impactful to the public. With the tunnel back open, the blue line of the T is no longer free and regular fares go back into place on the East Boston Ferry and the Newburyport-Rockport commuter rail line. Governor Healy is activating up to 250 National Guard members. They'll provide basic services for families in the shelter system. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, this comes after the state hit a record number of more than 6,000 families in the state-funded shelters. More than 700 of those families are in unstaffed hotel and motel placements, meaning they don't have access to the usual services, such as caseworkers and translators. Next week, the National Guard members will be assigned to those hotel units. They will help coordinate things like food, transportation, and medical care. The growing number of families in the shelter system is driven in part by newly arrived immigrant families. Many of them fled upheaval in Haiti and spent years on the road before arriving in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. The state's disaster relief fund for farmers will begin accepting applications for aid today. There's $20 million available for farmers in central and western Mass who were hit hard by flooding this summer. There's no word on how fast that money will be distributed. COVID cases in Massachusetts are on the rise. The Department of Health reports a 6% jump from last week. The increase in cases comes as a new variant is on the rise. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is expected to release a new booster later this month. The group says it's evaluating the effectiveness of the booster against the new variant. It's 8.08. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon. Focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. The Red Sox will be in Kansas City tonight to play the Royals. Sunny today with a high in the 70s. Clear overnight, it'll be in the 50s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 80s. Sunny on Sunday and Monday and in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. In the 22 years since the September 11th attacks, as remarkable as it may seem, no one has been put on trial. A breakthrough seemed to happen last year when settlement talks began with the five men accused of plotting the attack. But now government prosecutors say they will quit negotiating unless the defense offers to settle today. NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer is here with us to tell us more about just how real that deadline is. Sasha, good morning. Hi, Michelle. So how real is it? 
Probably not very. The background is that so far, the effort to have a 9-11 death penalty trial has been a complete failure. That's partly because it's happening at the U.S. military court in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, a logistical nightmare. And by the way, Michelle, as you and I have talked about, these five accused men, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, have been held at Guantanamo for nearly 20 years now. The trial delay is also because the five accused men were tortured, which creates huge legal problems. So settlement talks started a year and a half ago as an alternative resolution. The goal was the defendants plead guilty and get life in prison. But those talks are stalled until the Biden administration weighs in on issues like where they would serve their sentences. So one Guantanamo defense attorney, James Cannell, who represents a man named Amar Al-Baluchi, told me this. For Mr. Al-Baluchi, there is essentially no chance that there'll be a plea deal by Friday. I asked for a comment from the offices that oversee all the Guantanamo defense lawyers and prosecutors, but they didn't respond. Even though in the highly unlikely event that a signed plea offer were made today, it would still have to be approved by higher level officials. So no one I've talked to in the Guantanamo community believes the 9-11 case could be wrapped up today. So Sasha, you've been reporting on this for quite some time, like all aspects of this. So what do the families of 9-11 victims think about this? You know, a range of views, obviously. Many do support plea deals because they see the dysfunction at Guantanamo and they doubt a trial will ever happen. Even if it does, they worry it would be appealed or a verdict overturned. So a settlement would end years of waiting. One supporter is Elizabeth Miller. Her dad was a Staten Island firefighter who died on 9-11. My fear is that if we don't pursue plea deals and if the Biden administration doesn't put their full support behind this, I am... 28 years old, turning 29, I'm going to be doing this advocacy until I'm 50 plus years old. As you said, there's a range of views, and I assume that there are people who want the defendants put to death. What what about them? Yes, certainly many people want that. And in fact, last week, about 2,000 9-11 victims and family members signed a letter to President Biden expressing concern about plea deals. But one of the organizers of that signature campaign told me his concern is not about abandoning the death penalty. It's that not having a trial would be a lost opportunity. That's Brett Eagleson. He was 15 when his father died in the World Trade Center collapse. And he surprised me considering that he's helping lead a campaign against plea deals by saying this. I think plea deals will probably likely happen. And and I think that under the right conditions, plea deals would help the broader 9-11 community in our pursuit of justice. And, And when he says under the right conditions, what does he mean? He says that a stipulation of a plea agreement should be that the defendants have to share more information about how they carried out the attacks. Here's how he put it. I think that there is some sort of a happy medium where we can take the death penalty off the table But the condition would be that these individuals need to talk to our lawyers. Before we let you go, if the plea deals don't happen, will the government keep trying to take the 9-11 case to trial? Yes, but that means more pretrial hearings, which have been going on for a decade. And those hearings could get even more bogged down because of two recent Guantanamo curveballs. First, one of the 9-11 defendants has been found mentally incompetent to stand trial or plead guilty. And the second twist involves a ruling in a different Guantanamo case, the USS Cole warship bombing from all the way back in October 2000. That one is also still dragging along. And that judge recently threw out a confession because the defendant was tortured. That could be bad news for 9-11 prosecutors since their case also involves allegedly forced confessions. So don't expect a 9-11 trial anytime soon, if ever. That's NPR Sasha Pfeiffer. Sasha, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, this time for real. 
That's what some employers are saying about their return to office plans for this fall. Now, after multiple delays and lots of defiance, more and more office workers are grudgingly trudging back to their cubicles. Here's NPR's Andrew Shu. It's been three and a half years since the start of the pandemic, and office occupancy in major U.S. cities is still well under 50 percent. But change is in the air. Even Zoom's leadership is now extolling the virtues of being together. Matthew Saxon is Zoom's chief people officer. There is a buzz and there is something about like being able to go to have lunch with your teammates. This fall, employers all across the country are upping their requirements for in-person work. BlackRock has asked people to come in four days a week, up from three. Amazon says some remote workers will need to move close to a hub to keep their jobs. And the nation's largest employer, the federal government, is taking a harder line, even as federal employee unions push back. Here's Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. I do believe we need to be around each other in person more than we are now to ensure this department's long-term success. Studies have shown people get more feedback when they're in the same space as their coworkers. There's more mentoring. Fully remote workers have reported feeling isolated, even lonely. But if there's wide agreement that some in-person time is beneficial, the question is how much and when. What we, we sort of talk about is like the office has to earn its commute. There has to be a reason to come into work. Zoom's Matthew Saxon says they tried having engineers come in once a week, but people were frustrated to find their colleagues weren't there. They still had to sit on Zoom meetings just from the office. Now Zoom's asking people to come in two days a week on days set by their teams. But the policy only applies to those who live within 50 miles of a Zoom office. About 35%. A majority, including Saxon, are still remote. But that's less common these days. A recent Boston Consulting Group survey of 1,500 office workers found 85% working in some kind of hybrid mode. Only 8% were fully remote. Those surveyed said having some say in when to come in makes a big difference. Here's Boston Consulting's Debbie Lovich. Post-COVID, for the first time ever, we are being told when and where to show up. And it just is sparking this reaction from people like, wait a minute. Don't you trust me? Still, as the labor market has cooled, workers are starting to realize the remote job may not be forever. Consider what happened to Roxana Garcia Espejo. In the spring of 2022, the former classroom teacher was hired as a Microsoft trainer, helping customers with Excel and other applications. It had been a lifelong dream for me, like, I'm working for Microsoft. I mean, like, how cool is this, right? Even cooler, she only had to be in the office 20% of the time. For Garcia Espejo, who became a caregiver for her aging parents in the pandemic, the flexibility proved transformative. My work-life balance was completely changed. She began exercising. Her blood pressure dropped. She adapted well to being remote, loving the lively discussions of the online chat. As if it were the all-day chatter of all the teams that I was a part of. But her dream job was short-lived. This spring, Garcia Espejo's entire team was cut as part of mass layoffs. She's been searching for another remote position with no luck. A year ago, it might have been a different story. With her unemployment soon running out, she's starting to consider in-person jobs. I guess I don't look at it anymore as I'm holding out. I look at it as I'm in control of where I want my ship to sail. She's even considering returning to teaching, but as a substitute to hold on to some flexibility. Andrea Shu, NPR News.
Nobel laureate Muhammad Yunus is often called the banker to the poor. He founded the Grameen Bank, which provides small loans to very low-income people to help them run enterprises which improve their lives and also reduce the need for aid. His ideas have been replicated around the world, but in his homeland of Bangladesh, he is facing a fresh bout of legal troubles. NPR's Dia Hadid reports. Muhammad Yunus is famous. Simpsons guest appearance famous. This is from an episode where Lisa wants to donate her inheritance money mm. to a good cause. I'm Muhammad Yunus, founder of the Grameen Bank. And oh yeah, I'm also the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. But in Bangladesh, he's more controversial to some. The Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina has long been hostile to Yunus. Ever since 2007, when fresh from winning a Nobel, he briefly floated the idea of entering politics. To the supporters of Hasina and her Awami League party, that seemed like a threat. Jeffrey MacDonald is a Bangladesh expert from the US Institute of Peace. The fact that he presented himself as a possible political alternative has drawn the ire of the Awami League ever since. And he's faced a slew of legal cases. And now he's accused of siphoning off dividends owned to workers, of labour law violations and corruption. The fresh allegations made headline news. Yunus has not publicly commented on these latest allegations, but it's drawn the attention of his powerful supporters outside Bangladesh who describe them as judicial harassment. This week, dozens of them, including Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, signed an open letter calling on the Prime Minister to suspend legal proceedings. Sam Daly-Harris is one of the less famous signers. He worked alongside Yunus for years in a hunger eradication organisation, and he fears... The various court cases end up in an imprisonment of Mohammed Yunus. But Shah Ali Farhad, a former advisor to the Prime Minister, says this is about accountability before the law. He accuses Yunus of bullying. Yunus has been using his powerful connections in the West to intimidate the government of Bangladesh. This all comes ahead of January elections in Bangladesh, which critics say has become increasingly authoritarian under the rule of Prime Minister Hasina. Analysts say that makes it difficult for the government to claim that this is simply a legal matter. The fact that he is obviously being vilified and victimised is something which is fairly obvious to anyone who has any sense. Shahid al-Alam is a prominent photographer. He was jailed for several months five years ago after criticising the Prime Minister. And he says the idea that Yunus, once the pride of Bangladesh, could also be jailed, is grotesque. Dia Hadid, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we have an update on efforts to understand long COVID. Scientists say they may have identified some of its possible causes. It's 820. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Take a moment to ask yourself. Are you well-rested? 
I'm not going to tell you what my answer is, but you can probably guess because maybe you feel the same way. In a world where we emphasize productivity and celebrate busyness, is constant fatigue inevitable? Or can we learn and practice meaningful rest? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny today with a high near 74. Clear skies tonight and a low around 58. Tomorrow, sunny again with a high around 80. Sunday, mostly sunny and a high near 86. And sunny on Labor Day with a high back at 86. Right now, it's 61 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From EBSCO, supporting open source technology and making open platforms possible for libraries of all sizes. Learn more at ebsco.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. All right, when you hear that music, you know it's time for StoryCorps. It's been 20 years since StoryCorps began recording conversations between Americans, archiving them at the Library of Congress, and sharing them with you on Morning Edition. Each Friday this month, we're revisiting classic StoryCorps conversations from the past two decades with updates from the participants. My name is Deborah Bricars. I'm 26 years old. My name is Michael Edward Walmetz, but call me Mike. I'm 25 years old. And we're at the StoryCorps interview booth in Grand Central Terminal, New York City. The conversation between this couple was one of the first ever broadcasts on NPR back in 2004. At the time, Michael and Deborah had only been dating for three months. So what was the most emotionally painful thing that ever happened? Uh, Thinking about it takes my breath away. But uh, my father passing away, of course, just over two years ago. And he was the closest person to me. It was sudden, and he was supposed to pick me up from the airport in New York. And I got to the airport, and I called my house, and my mother said, um, you know, your aunt's going to pick you up. Obviously, I could detect something in her voice. There's no way that you could hide that. And I was like, tell me what it is. My mother said, I don't want to tell you like this. And I was like, tell me. You have to tell me. Tell me. And she told me that he died in the middle of the night. I stood there and watched the bags go around the carousel and I waited for my back and I went outside and I got in my aunt's car and uh, I felt like no other time in my life. So this is the ring that my father gave to my mother and we can leave it there. Um, And he saved up and he purchased this and he proposed to my mother with this. And so I thought that I would give it to you so that he could be with us for this also. Um, So... I'm going to share a mic with you right now, Deborah. Where's the right finger? <laughs> Deborah, will you please marry me? Yeah, of course. I love you. <laughs> so, kids, this is how your mother and I got married in a booth in Grand Central Station uh, with my father's ring 
My grandfather was a cab driver for 40 years, used to pick people up here every day, so it seems right. I wanted to know if there's a vision for the future about, let's say, 20 years. 20 years? That's yeah. a long time. Okay, How old you will you be in 20? In 20 years, I'll be 45 years old. Um, there's a Portuguese phrase. Cada vez que você faz um plano, Deus ri. Every time you make a plan, God laughs. Yes. I believe that, so I have no idea what I'll be doing. But I know I'll be with you. My name is Mike Walmets. I'm here with my wife, Deborah Burkars. It's been almost 20 years. We're still together and we have two kids, Iago, who's 14, and Luca, who's 11. You know, we went through a lot of tissues during our first interview. <laughs> I don't say a lot, but I cry a lot. You know, I also cried during it. It really brought back memories of the earliest days of a relationship. Also, just how much we spoke to, like, our future children. How uh, presumptuous was that? Like, I don't think before it's saying those words, had I even thought about the idea of having children. I was 24 years old. And we were young and in love. Yes, I definitely was that. But I was not young and in love with children. <laughs> I, I just want to say that it was uh, not at all the intention when we did this to have our proposal broadcast. The intention was to have it recorded for our own posterity. Do you remember what we did right after we came out of the interview? We got on the train. I mean, the whole idea was we did this in a train station. So how could we not just get on a train? And I think we went to a bed and breakfast somewhere, maybe just outside the city. Yeah, you wanted to celebrate and you knew that I liked history. So you found this little historic B&B. You had told me how you are part of a history club. And I only learned later that it wasn't a real history club. <laughs> it was a Lord of the Rings fan club. I didn't want you to think that I was a geek or something. So I just fudged that it was medieval history instead of Lord of the Rings. And this is a lesson. Sometimes you don't know everything about your partner uh, when you get engaged, especially if it's after three months. <laughs> what do you hope our kids or our grandkids take away from listening to these recordings? So I hope they will learn who we were back then as a young couple in love with all these hopes and dreams and no responsibilities. Um, you're a much better singer than me, so please help me out as much as you can. But love me tender, love me sweet. Never let me go. And then in this interview, they'll meet us as an established couple who went through all the growing pains of getting to know each other, who learned about each other and ourselves and had problems in life, but were very fortunate to be able to overcome them. Oh, my darling Deborah, I love you. <laughs> And I always will. And I have a heart of stone not to cry on that one. That was uh, Michael Walmitz and his wife, Deborah Bacars. And if you're wondering whether their kids have listened to their interview yet, well, we're told that they tried but found it boring. Check back with us in 20 years for an update. Should be a good one. Both of their conversations are archived along with all StoryCorps interviews at the Library of Congress. 
Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We learn about the new crops some Massachusetts farmers are turning to as climate change brings warmer weather. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice, opening September 2nd. Learn more at PEM.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Damage assessments are continuing along Florida's northern Gulf Coast in the aftermath of Hurricane Adalia. It came ashore in the state's Big Bend area as a Category 3 storm. Widespread damage occurred in places such as Cedar Key, Crystal River, and Perry. The bank UBS is estimating insured losses in Florida of more than $9 billion. Tens of thousands of homes and businesses remain without power in Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas. President Biden is expected to travel to Florida tomorrow to get a look at some of the damage. A Texas law banning gender-affirming care for minors goes into effect today. That's despite the recent ruling from a judge that the ban is unconstitutional. Julian Aguilar with the Texas Newsroom has more. Senate Bill 14 bans access to puberty blockers, hormone therapies, or gender transition surgeries in Texas for people under 18. Last week, a state district judge blocked the measure while a lawsuit challenging it moves through the courts. But the Texas Attorney General's office quickly appealed. And on Thursday, the state Supreme Court ruled the ban can take effect today. Whether SB 14's here for good depends on the court's final ruling in the case, and there's no clear timeline on that yet. The Biden administration says nursing homes in the U.S. will be required to comply with federal rules on staffing levels. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Brockton Public Schools are dealing with another financial deficit. In an emergency meeting last night, school committee members announced they found a $14 million deficit. That's on top of an $18 million shortfall that led to more than 100 layoffs earlier this year. The Brockton mayor also announced last night that District Superintendent Mike Thomas is now on extended medical leave. He didn't give details. School committee members are expected to have another emergency meeting later this afternoon to discuss both issues. The city manager in Worcester says an investigation into the city's police chief should have been reported to the state's recently created police oversight board. City manager Eric Batista tells the Telegram and Gazette he was not aware of the investigation because it began in 2021, a year before he took office. Batista says the city is in the process of reporting the incident. 
Watch out for all the moving trucks around Boston today. Thousands of people are moving with apartment leases turning over and college students returning. Nick Gove is Boston's deputy chief for transportation. He says the city has issued 2,400 moving permits, allowing people to park trucks in order to load and unload. Do not block an intersection. Um, you know, do not do not put your vehicle or belongings in a place uh, that that won't lo- allow uh, a fire truck, a trash truck, or or an ambulance to get by. Today is nicknamed Alston Christmas for the tradition of people browsing through trash to take items others may have left behind. But city officials say people put stuff in the trash for a reason, and everyone else should leave it there. It's eight thirty-three. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Last chance to visit, see art on both sides of the harbor, closes September 4th. ICABoston.org. The Red Sox will play the Royals tonight in Kansas City. With one month left in the season, the Red Sox are six and a half games out of a wild card spot in the American League. Former Red Sox pitcher Bill Spaceman Lee is recovering in the hospital after he collapsed at Polar Park in Worcester last night. The 76-year-old got sick while playing catch in the field before last night's Woo Sox game. The team says Lee was rushed to the hospital but didn't give specifics on what happened. Clear skies and highs in the mid-70s today. Temperatures fall to the upper 50s tonight, then sunny skies the whole Labor Day holiday weekend with highs around 80 tomorrow and mid to upper 80s on Sunday and Monday. Right now, it's 63 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI. Dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, is considering changing how cannabis is regulated. For more than 50 years, it's been classified as a Schedule One drug, a category for dangerous substances like heroin that have no medical use and a high potential for abuse. This week, the Department of Health and Human Services reportedly recommended relisting cannabis as a Schedule Three drug, which would put it in the company of ketamine, anabolic steroids, and Tylenol with codeine. Now, the DEA has the final word. Amanda Chicago-Lewis is an investigative reporter who has written about cannabis for outlets such as Rolling Stone and The New York Times. Amanda, why is this happening now? Well, I think this is ultimately a political gesture that uh, President Biden is trying to use to potentially juice his 2024 re-election chances. So just that, just because it's it's the popular thing to do now? Well, you know, I hate to tell you this, but uh, drug scheduling in this country, uh, <laughs> though we like to pretend it's yeah. about science and evidence, and uh, though HHS and uh, the White House have been talking about how this is science and evidence-based, uh, is in fact something that's political, it's cultural, it's about race, it's about socioeconomics, uh, and it's never really quite been about science. Yeah. Now, how would the federal government's recognition of a medical use for cannabis change how it's prescribed? 
So oddly enough, um, this would make it easier for us to do medical research on cannabis, right? So the Schedule One designation has ended up being this catch-22 over the last 50 years where it's very difficult to research because it's Schedule One, and we're calling it uh, not having any acceptable medical uses because we can't do that research. So that's been real fun. And it's ultimately going to be if it gets rescheduled, a lot easier for state legal cannabis businesses to pay their taxes. Right now, there is a quirk in the tax code that means a state licensed cannabis business cannot take deductions. So they end up paying closer to a, a rate of 70% taxes rather than, you know, the normal business might pay like 30 or 35%. Um, this is one of the reasons why it's prohibitively expensive to run a legal cannabis business. Uh, and it's the reason why this announcement has sent cannabis business stocks soaring. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I figured the, the industry would probably love it or is, is rooting for it. Well, uh, to a certain extent, yes. But also most people in the industry would prefer if cannabis were completely descheduled, mm -hmm. right? Um, as I said, the scheduling system doesn't really make sense on a scientific level. Uh, if it did, wouldn't alcohol be a controlled substance? Yeah. Now, what, so one thing, though, on, on rescheduling, and you mentioned science, does that give researchers the opportunity to maybe discover more about cannabis? Sure, potentially. But, you know, uh, I think the American public already truly believes that uh, cannabis has huge medical potential. Um, we already have FDA-approved CBD drug for seizures that comes from cannabis. And, you know, we've seen the NIH uh, tell us that cannabis has like therapeutic potential for almost all diseases. This is from a, a two researchers in 2013 put this work out. So there's a lot there we could discover. And one more thing really quick, uh, the so-called war on drugs, what could these rescheduling mean for its very harmful side effects over, the, over our history? Uh, yeah, so that is not what this is about, right? And so mm. that's part of why this could be a real empty political gesture, because I think the thing that people are upset about when it comes to cannabis being illegal is the fact that we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people arrested every yeah. year still for possession. This is not going to change that. That's investigative reporter Amanda Chicago-Lewis. Uh, thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Why is long COVID so perplexing? Scientists met this week to address the persistent symptoms that some people develop in hopes of figuring out the cause or causes and how to treat them. NPR's Will Stone has this report. Dr. Rasika Karnik first started seeing long COVID patients in her clinic at the University of Chicago all the way back in the fall of 2020. She says at least now there are a lot more studies and doctors who know about it. So I feel a little less out in the wilderness, but it's still there. There's not the same rigorous evidence for treatment and there's no diagnostic yet. Her approach is basically to rule out other illnesses, treat her patients for whatever symptoms they do have, sometimes use medications off-label. And she tries to be honest, that scientists still don't know what's driving the illness. Do I wish things were faster? Of course I would. It's hard to look a patient in the eye and say, we're not quite sure yet. Karnick was at the long COVID conference in Santa Fe held by the nonprofit Keystone Symposia. Dr. Stephen Deeks at the University of California, San Francisco, was one of the organizers. He says the reality is decoding a complex, hard-to-define illness like long COVID takes time. You need to describe it. That's kind of happening. Then you need to figure out the epidemiology. How common is it? Who's at risk? How long does it last? We're sort of there. Then you got to figure out the mechanism. 
right? And that's basically the focus now. What makes this so challenging is that long COVID doesn't present in just one way. There tend to be different clusters of symptoms, which suggests there may be numerous underlying causes. Dr. Catherine Blish at Stanford University says this matters when you start to set up trials to test treatments. We need to understand in detail who's most likely to benefit from those, because if we just take everyone, that trial will fail. Scientists have now largely coalesced around a handful of explanations for what could be driving long COVID. There's clear evidence of dysfunction within the immune system, of viral reservoirs, meaning parts of the virus linger in the body, of widespread inflammation in the blood vessels and harmful clotting, and of other viruses, specifically the Epstein-Barr virus, being reactivated. Some of these could be interrelated. They could be happening in certain patients, but not others. We have at this point hints and correlative data. Like we can say we see this in this subset of people, but just because we see a finding in a subset of people doesn't mean it's the cause. Take, for example, this theory that viral persistence is causing long COVID. Dr. Michael Peluso at the University of California, San Francisco, says they're now confident these pieces of viral proteins are in the blood of long COVID patients. But that's not the end of the story. We're more likely to find this in people who are sort of the most symptomatic, but not everybody with long COVID has this. And then really importantly, we're also seeing this in some people who feel totally fine, and we don't know what that means. These are the types of thorny questions that are still hanging over long COVID researchers. Peluso has just launched a trial to see if an anti-COVID monoclonal antibody can help patients. Lisa McCorkle is with the advocacy group Patient-Led Research Collaborative. She's energized by the progress scientists are making, but she worries they don't have enough support. What we really need here is pharma engagement. We need industry engagement. We need funding for clinical trials. Because that's how all of this research will turn into actual treatments. Will Stone, NPR News. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the effort to replace so-called fast fashion with secondhand shopping. Now to the all-important holiday weekend forecast. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce thinks you're going to like it. Well, a gorgeous holiday weekend region-wide. Barely a cloud in the sky today. Cool and kind of a crisp start out there, but temperatures will be 70 to 75 by this afternoon. Mostly clear tonight, overnight low around 60. Tomorrow, mostly sunny to start, high around 80. Then some building afternoon clouds. It'll be a feel of summer, Sunday and Labor Day. Humid and warmer too, highs in the mid 80s. Be around 90 north of the city and in the 70s to around 80 on Cape Cod with a blend of sun and clouds. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Cambridge-based Sage Therapeutics plans to lay off 40 percent of its workforce. That's about 275 employees. The layoffs come after the Food and Drug Administration approved a drug made by the company for postpartum depression. The FDA rejected it to treat major depressive disorder, despite the treatment being marketed for both disorders. 
Newton-based Acer Therapeutics is being sold. Florida-based Zever Therapeutics will buy the company in a $91 million deal. Reports obtained by the Boston Business Journal show Acer had only $1.6 million on hand before the sale. A new bookstore opens in Harvard Square today. Rodney's Bookstore is opening on Church Street. The store was previously located for more than two decades in Central Square. That location closed during the pandemic. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington. Kicking off the new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic. Directed by Huntington Artistic Director Loretta Greco. Two generations of a Parisian family are forced to question their safety and sense of belonging in the city they love. Start September 7th at the Huntington Theater. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Farmers have just a few things they can control, and that definitely doesn't include the increasingly erratic weather brought on by climate change. But in New England, the increasing summer heat and warming winters could bring an opportunity. It could lengthen the growing season and allow farmers to plant new types of crops. Jill Kaufman explains as part of our series with the New England News Collaborative called Beyond Normal. Oh, there's a a number of crab apples, some well-known ones like uh, Dolgo and Wixen and... uh, In Hadley, Massachusetts, my neighbor, farmer Jonathan Carr, has a few dozen saplings in a sort of tree lab. It's not far from his 39-acre apple orchard up on a mountainside. Carr doesn't grow apples for eating. He grows them to make hard cider selling about a 1,000 cases a year. The heavy rains and humidity of the last few years have hit his orchard hard with a bacterial disease called fire blight. He's had to pull out hundreds of trees. There's stuff coming at us, and we can see it coming. So what's going to happen? How do we respond? Carr's response has been to spend a few years cultivating and observing apple tree varieties typically grown in warmer climates, looking for qualities like flavorful fruit and an ability to ward off pests. The old-fashioned limber twig is a variety he's really excited about. Its branch structure is very uh, open. Its uh, leaf canopy is compact, allows for good air movement within the tree, which will lower humidity and keep disease lower because of that. And the fruit. Cell pressure in these late season dense fleshed apples will actually crush uh, insect larvae and not allow them to develop. So that's like a natural pest resistance. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) And Carr says basically nobody in New England is growing them because they're from down south. It ripens pretty late. It's a November apple, so that's unusual for New England. But we're getting to the point where we can, you know, ripen, ripen apples later and later here. I do think that it's one of the things that growers are thinking about. What are the new opportunities that might be opening up as we understand more about the ways in which climate is shifting? On average, Sonia Schloman says the Northeast has about 10 days more of warmer weather than a few decades ago. 
Schlangman is a small fruit specialist at the organization CISA, which advocates for local food production. The region is seeing and will see more varieties of fruits that 40 years ago weren't grown here. More southern varieties of peaches that maybe used to grow well in Pennsylvania or Maryland or varieties of blueberries that are considered more southern. And they might bring with them some characteristics that we really want to take advantage of, either flavor or yield or disease resistance or something that makes them desirable. Well, this, these are Macintosh. This is On a, top of an, an orchard in Belchertown, Massachusetts, John Clements, a tree fruit specialist at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, says warmer weather in the Northeast will provide a longer growing season, but that is not what he's thinking about. Right now, with some of the difficulties we're facing with the changing climate, we have new diseases moving in, we have new insect pests. I have to spend a lot of time just dealing with that and making sure that we can successfully grow what we currently have. Because as the warmer temperatures have pushed the USDA growing zone north, diseases are also traveling north. The pests that we're seeing were common down in North Carolina 25, 30 years ago, we're now seeing here more commonly. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a Vandevere here. In Hadley, um, cider maker Jonathan Carr says when he started the orchard, he took a gamble. He planted 900 English apple trees that are now failing in this climate. Yeah, it was a risk, and I think we lost that one. But, you know, there's really no choice but to, you know, keep going forward. Carr says to keep business going, they'll buy apples from other growers, while over the next few years, they plant, hopefully, more resilient trees. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. We'll have more stories on the changing climate of New England tomorrow on Weekend Edition. You can also check out our coverage at WBUR.org. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on a major typhoon approaching Hong Kong and how climate change may have played a role in the near extinction of early human ancestors 900,000 years ago. It's 8.50. More teens are overdosing on fentanyl, so schools are grappling with how to approach a drug use crisis unlike any they've seen before. We need to revive drug education in America. In a way, we need to Narcan drug education. We need to breathe life into it, bring it back. How schools can play a role in saving students' lives on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The Labor Department says employers added 187,000 jobs last month, while the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.8 percent. The White House is asking Congress for an additional $4 billion in disaster relief to help people in Hawaii, Florida and Vermont. And the Sumner Tunnel between East Boston and downtown is back open this morning after a two-month-long reconstruction project. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available, service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Mid-70s today and sunny, clear skies and upper 50s tonight. It's 64 degrees in Boston.
The big jobs report is out for August, but it also recasts June and July. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio. We have in hand the latest jobs report for the month just ended, but it comes with a big asterisk. The headline is that 187,000 more people were on American payrolls in the month just ended. That looks stronger than expected, so the job market is still growing despite higher interest rates. But that is not the end of the story. Economist Julia Coronado, founder of Macro Policy Perspectives, each month does us the favor of speed reading the fresh government data along with us and joins us live. Hey, Julia. Hey, good morning. Stronger than expected job growth in August. However, what's the asterisk? So we we get downward revisions to the prior two months with every report. The last so the three month average hiring is one hundred and fifty thousand. While that's elevated, but it's a, the direction is a cooling off in the labor market. Okay, your phone's breaking up a little bit, so maybe you want to rotate yourself near the window. Now, I want to know who's hiring and who's not. The hiring is, um, a lot of it is still coming from the healthcare sectors, but uh, more than 100,000 jobs from education and healthcare. That's been the case in the last couple of months. Uh, but many came back and started adding jobs again in August after some weak readings. Some weak readings. Now, all this is from counting up payrolls, which the Bureau of Labor Statistics does. Also, the government asks house to house for the unemployment rate. Now, that in August unexpectedly jumped from three and a half to three point eight percent. But if people say, aha, the economy turned sour, unemployment moved up. What's the reality, Julia? This is one of those good increases in the unemployment rate in the sense that people are coming back to the labor force. So we saw a big jump in the labor force participation rate. Not all of them have found jobs yet, so we saw the unemployment rate perk up. But that's a sign people expect to find jobs. All right. Julia Coronado is also a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Julia, always good to talk to you. Now, this is data that will guide job searches, interest rates, and many other money decisions. The typical bet by forecasters was that 170,000 more people would be on payrolls, and what came in was 187,000, which looks precisely like the month before. We also got the household survey of who's got a job and who's looking to uh, what's looking to yield the unemployment rate. But also, let's uh, take a look at how much money was spent building housing in America in July. Higher interest rates makes construction loans more expensive, also making construction more expensive. Climate change. Here's Justin Ho. In states where natural disasters are becoming more common, builders are demanding more climate-resistant building materials, like steel-reinforced walls and wind-resistant glass. And so then that makes it costlier if there's a spike in demand coming from all home builders in that area. That's Paranitha Sastry, a finance professor at Columbia Business School. As natural disasters pick up, Sastry says developers face additional regulatory hurdles, too, if they want to, say, qualify for the National Flood Insurance Program. You know, elevation requirements, there you know, may be restrictions on basement construction. Many insurance companies have been raising home insurance premiums in disaster-prone areas. Some insurers have stopped offering home insurance in certain states. Benjamin Collier, 
A professor at Temple University says that makes it harder for people to get mortgages. And as a result, even building those homes becomes more complicated because it's hard to find buyers for them. And Collier says construction projects themselves could face higher insurance costs, too. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. Checking markets, interest rates came down on that jobs report just slightly, 4.09% for the 10-year benchmark. Stocks, S&P futures are up 6 tenths percent. Dow futures are up 152, 4 tenths percent. NASDAQ futures up 6 tenths percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. What can video games, an industry bigger than movies and music combined, teach us about economics, business, money, and careers? Our ongoing project is called Skin in the Game. In the spring, I first visited GameHeads, a nonprofit mentoring program in Oakland, California, to learn how a diverse group of students was getting the skills to gain a foothold in a huge local industry with a track record of failing to hire people who look like them. A couple days ago, I went back to Oakland to see the games the student developers had come up with this summer. I saw a game exploring how personal bias can lead to life and death decisions. Another on how painting buildings reduces crime. Another group made a scrolling game where making good food choices gives the player extra power. Video game companies play a pivotal role in working to attract and retain people with diverse backgrounds. Parents also play a crucial role. I spoke with Trinidad Hermida, executive director of the Black in Gaming Foundation and former global head of diversity and inclusion at Niantic, which counts Pokemon Go among its hits. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, and I'm encouraging parents to not be so adverse to a child saying, I want to make video games. Not so adverse to a child saying, I want to be an artist. Not so adverse to a child saying, I want to create. Because these industries are centered around creation and centered around being open, and they are lucrative. We spoke with Trinidad Hermida and other video game industry insiders as part of a roundtable we'll release later this month. But today, we're launching a Skin in the Game podcast following the paths of these young people going from game players to game makers. That'll be at the top of the Marketplace Morning Report podcast feed later today and throughout the holiday weekend. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Recapping the top story, there's news from the government that the economy created 187,000 more jobs in the month just ended. That is stronger than expected, but the two months before were revised downward, suggesting some cooling overall. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Count on great weather through the Labor Day holiday weekend. We'll have sunny skies with mid-70s today and upper 50s tonight. Sunny and upper 70s tomorrow, then clear skies and mid to upper 80s on Sunday and Monday. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston and the BBC NewsHour is coming up next.
a moment to ask yourself, are you well-rested? I'm not going to tell you what my answer is, but you can probably guess because maybe you feel the same way. In a world where we emphasize productivity and celebrate busyness, is constant fatigue inevitable? Or can we learn and practice meaningful rest? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.